This is our final lesson in our uh, introduction of 1 Corinthians and talking about undivided. Uh, and uh, really been, I hope, uh, a useful series in talking about how to deal with the situation that you see in the Corinthian church that can fit sometimes in other congregations where we don't want to see fighting, how to deal with strife, how to deal with disagreement and disputes, and even how to deal then even with divisions and how to keep those things from happening. And so the Apostle Paul has really spent five and a half chapters talking about those things that we saw in chapter 1 and verse 10 that his urging of them and an appeal to them would be that they would not be divided, but that they would be of the same mind, they would have the same judgment, that they would not have strife in in any way. It has been presented to us uh, throughout these uh, chapters how that's supposed to happen and what is the mind change that is required to be able to accomplish that. We saw last time in chapter 5 a very notable problem that was going on there in the church in Corinth where we see a sexual immorality that's going on that would not even be acceptable in the world among the pagans and really what made the whole thing worse was rather than the church doing something about it and condemning that sin and trying to uh, bring about a repentance we see the church seeming to be arrogant and boasting in it seeing it as no big deal and so you see the apostle Paul instructing that church that that cannot be and there needs to be changes when we come into chapter 6 now for our final lesson we're going to notice that we've got yet another problem before us, another issue that's at stake. And you see that as what would probably be most stunning in this is not only are they dividing and glorying over all the wrong things, this other problem is, is perhaps just as shocking in that. So notice the, as we read then 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and we'll begin in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1. And when one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And so here's another problem that he identifies as going on in the congregation is, all right, and so when Christians have a problem or a grievance of any kind with another, the way they solve it is that they then drum up a lawsuit and take it to court. And that's how they're going to solve the problem. And so he noticed the incredulous language that he uses when he says, if any of you has this grievance against one, do you dare take it to court? It's just, it seems to be beyond him how that would be possible that this would be the means by which you would do that. He says, why would that be? And so notice how he responds to the situation in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all is to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you why not suffer wrong why not rather be defrauded but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers 
And so he kind of lays out the scene here and, and said, I can't believe that you have lawsuits here. You have a dispute that is going on. And then he goes on to point out it is just simply foolish on their part to think that this would be resolved by outsiders, to be resolved by unbelievers. And the point that would be at that is, why would we think that those who do not have the wisdom of God, but possess the wisdom of the world, people who do not have the same worldview as a Christian and do not possess the same values as a Christian, why would you think that they would be a good person to go to to solve some kind of grievance or dispute that is going on between two Christians? How would that make any logical sense? And that's what he's he's getting at with them, that there should be somebody among them that they could take their dispute to and say, we have this issue, there is this grievance, and we need somebody here to be able to resolve that. And that's really then the questions that he's getting at here is, how can it be that there would not be somebody there who would be able to do that? And notice at the end of verse 1, you take it to court before the unrighteous, instead of the saints. This should have been something that you could have resolved on your own and certainly could have brought in someone who is spiritual, who is a Christian, who would be able to help out and be able to discern what is going on in that situation. And so Paul begins with that problem. In fact, the way that he argues that I think is pretty fascinating. In verse 2, he's making the point that there should be able, we should have the ability and be able to have a spiritual mind to be able to discern these earthly disputes. Whatever it is that is going on in this physical realm, whatever the earthly problem is, there should be enough spiritual wisdom and enough spiritual competence to be able to discern these earthly physical things. And the way that he makes the argument, I think, is rather fascinating. And I kind of broke it down line by line so that you can see the way that he makes the argument. He says, understand, like verse 2 and verse 3, Christians are going to judge the world and they're going to judge angels. So how would it be possible that you are not competent to be able to make judgments regarding earthly smaller cases? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If we're going to judge the world and judge angels, how is it possible that you can't even then judge these minor, insignificant, trivial, worldly, physical things when on the day of judgment there's going to be such bigger things ahead? And so that is really then the, the point that's being made. And I want to like underline that because I understand that immediately everybody goes to, what, we're judging the world and angels, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but don't get so caught by what does that mean and miss the whole point of the argument. The whole point of the argument is look at you should be able to handle such trivial things. And he's calling these physical disputes, these worldly disagreements as trivial. They're small when compared to the kind of judgments that we are going to apparently be involved in when it comes to the world and with angels. And so that's why he uses this argument this way is to say we ought to be able to be competent enough to handle disagreements. We ought to be able to resolve these kinds of disputes. There ought to be a way to come together and come to a resolution and it not come down to, well, we're going to have to just take this to court and bring in outsiders and bring in the unrighteous and do something like that. This should be solved amongst ourselves. And he presents what should be the worst case scenario 
is that you'd have to bring in another Christian to help solve the dispute. Because we should be confident enough to handle these things. Now, I know what you want to talk about, so let's talk about it. That doesn't mean, then, for it to say that we're talking about Christians are going to judge the world and are going to judge angels. I think it's important as a starting point to just simply consider. There is no place that I am able to locate in the scriptures where we see an idea where Christians on the day of judgment are going to have angels and the wicked pass before them and they, uh, independent of Christ, are going to be able to now execute judgments over their lives. I just don't see where we're going to go and say that's going to happen. And what sometimes is said is, well, when we all you know, get to heaven the day of judgment, we're going to be given that divine wisdom to be able to do that. But notice that's a failure of the argument. The whole point is that you should be with the divine wisdom now to judge these things on earth because with that you will be able to do this one day in this final analysis of the wicked and of angels. So I don't think that's the part that he's getting at. Rather, what we see always told to us in the scriptures, and we even glanced at it quite a bit this morning in our study, about the idea of how as Christians, as the family of Christ, we are reigning with Christ and with that we are ruling with him. I'll give you a New Testament and an Old Testament passage like 2 Timothy 2 verse 11 the saying is trustworthy if we have died with him we will also live with him if we endure we will also reign with him and I don't think anybody should think of that and go okay what that means is God is going to give us plots of spiritual places upon which we are going to now reign and rule our little sovereign territory that we get to make all the decisions it's not the idea but that God reigns and he is ruling over all things and we are joined with him in that reign the Old Testament does similarly a passage that we looked at this morning Daniel seven twenty seven: the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominion shall serve and obey him so notice there is this picture that we corporately with the lord jesus uh, in his rule and in his lordship we share in that reigning and share in that rule and i think that's the point that's being made not to say that All right, we're going to get all of our friends walking in front of us and you're going to get to pass judgment over the wicked and the angels and all that. But a much greater idea of here is Christ reigning and he is on the throne and he is judging and we are with him in that and we are judging along with him in those things. And so the argument that I believe Jesus then is making through the Apostle Paul then is that there should be a spiritual person to be able to settle disputes. We should be coming to that kind of wisdom and coming to that kind of understanding and have that kind of ability to use what we know about God and what is revealed in his word to be able to settle problems, to deal with arguments, to handle grievances and settle disputes. That is what we're called to do. It's what we're supposed to do. You think about our study of the Sermon on the Mount. There is the call of the identity of his people to be peacemakers. They're supposed to be able to be the ability for us to do that. And so I think that is what is being said to us here. But rather than them being wise in dealing with one another as Christians, these 
Corinthian Christians are going to court instead, as verse 6 talks about. And he just says that just can't be. You have something far more important and far greater. Do you understand what you belong to in the rule and the reign and the judgment of Christ in which you are tied to in all of those great realities to come? How can you not apply those things and use those things here and now? Now, what I think is interesting about this is, you know, the Apostle Paul could have ended that right there. I mean, this is a pretty good way to answer the problem. Why are you taking it to court? Get somebody among you who is spiritual and deal with it that way. So get one of the elders, get somebody who's a spiritual leader, you bring them in, solve the dispute, end of story. That's a great resolution. You can put the period on it and be done with it. But that's not what the Apostle Paul does. Rather than just simply say... You shouldn't be going to court with Christian against Christian. You should deal with them on your own. And if you can't settle the dispute as a Christian with another Christian, bring in another Christian to handle it. The Apostle Paul goes far deeper and talks about here's really where the problem lies. Notice in verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? So notice he says, there's a hard problem that I need to deal with here. And you have to think about the truth of that. If the best way that we could handle our arguments and disputes is to get a lawsuit and go to court... That shows there is a really big problem in the heart. And that's what he begins to now talk about. Where he says, this is already a defeat for you. For you to have a lawsuit against somebody else, you have already lost with God. In fact, that Greek word for defeat is the word that's most frequently used in talking about a legal case. And he's saying, you might have a win in the legal court system, but you have had a defeat in God's court system. You have had a loss if you think that that is the way to handle the issue. And so that's the point that he wants them to understand, is that they're not getting how they should look at these things. That it is a defeat for us to go against one another. And I think what's particularly Interesting about that is when he asks these rhetorical questions in, in this section, why not just suffer loss? Why not just suffer defeat? Why not just be defrauded? There's something as a reminder to us that the Christian life is not about receiving personal vindication and judgment right here, right now. And sometimes we're like willing to do that in life is, well, I need to be justified right now. And that's why I'm going to take somebody to court, take this other brother or sister to court. And he's pointing out that that just shouldn't be. And why is it that we have this idea that we would have to have that kind of thing? I think it's just a reminder to us that when there is that kind of heart, it shows that we have already failed. If we are unable to go to somebody to whom as a Christian have this issue and have this dispute and we cannot go to the person one on one and deal with it, it shows that we have a problem. It shows that there is a heart problem. It shows that we have already failed. 
And so it's a significant thing for the Apostle Paul to say, for you to behave in this way and to take action against your brother and sister in Christ in this fashion is already a defeat to you. You have already lost everything before God when you act that way. It's a very strong reminder to us about how we treat other Christians is very important to God. It is extremely important how we speak to one another, how we deal with each other, that is ultimately important before God. You see that all the time in the Scriptures. I mean, we, we get to pictures like in First Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, where here you have the husband who's not dealing with his wife in a proper way, and it says your prayers are blocked, your prayers are hindered. God cares about how we deal with one another. It matters in how we treat one another. And here he says it is defeat for you if this is the attitude that we are going to have with one another. And so how should we handle conflict? He says, well, why not just suffer wrong? Why not just be defeated? And he's reminding us that it would be far better for us to take a financial loss than it is to take a spiritual loss. All right, somebody's harmed you. You have a legitimate grievance. You have something that has happened to you. Why does the response necessarily have to be that I'm right and I'm going to do something about it? That's why he asked these questions. Just suffer wrong. Why not? Why not be defrauded? That's the word for being cheated. Just just be cheated then. It's okay. Just let that kind of thing go. And it reminds us then that just because we might think that we are in some kind of legal right or have some kind of moral standing by which we say this is right, this is wrong, it doesn't mean that we're in the, necessarily the spiritual right of what God would have us to do. It's certainly a reminder to us that what the world perceives as the right way to handle things is not the way God says you're supposed to handle things. And just because the world says this is how you handle disagreements and grievances and loss and problems doesn't mean that's the way God says you're supposed to do it. But we're supposed to handle these things differently. And to be willing to suffer that kind of loss. And that's so why I just, as I was going through this, I'm going to keep putting this on the screen. Why is it that we are often so consumed about personal vindication? Why is it that we always have to be right? I don't know what faulty human wiring that is that we get to that point in life. But we just like, if I'm right then I'm going to be right. And I'm going to make sure you know that I'm right. And even if it brings you harm, I'm going to be right. And notice that he's already setting up for us. Here's a situation where the Christian is legitimately has an issue. And he's saying, you have been wronged. You have been defrauded. You have been cheated. And he just goes, well, why not just deal with that and accept that? Is it important for them for us to consider then what this looks like when it comes to the people of God and how we deal with one another? If two people are truly changed by the love of God and are acting on the basis of the love of God and are thinking and behaving as God would have them to think and God would have them to behave, then neither person would want to see the other person suffer loss or suffer wrong. 
And the reason why I think that's important is because then for the one who has done something wrong and you have defrauded them or wronged them financially or whatever it is between these two Christians, the Christian would want to resolve that wrong at all costs. If I know that I've done something wrong against you, it should be my desire to try to right that wrong, to correct that. That you would bring that to my attention and say, this is the issue. That I've been defrauded in this way. You cheated me this way. I've suffered loss because of what you've done. And those who are truly moved by the love of God would say, I want to solve that. I am apologetic about that. I want to fix that and do whatever I can. And by the same token, you have on the other side, if you have been wronged, he says of the Christian, then why not just go ahead and let it be the case? Just suffer the loss. Just suffer the wrong. It puts an interesting spin on what reconciliation would look like if here is this dispute, whether it be financial or whatever, And the Christian realizes, I have wronged this person. And you go to them and say, I have wronged you. Let me take care of the problem. And the person who has been wronged is saying, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You have a resolution that's going to come together very easily. When one is saying, let me fix. And the other is saying, it's okay. But how often that's not how we go about disputes and go about our difficulties. And yet that is the picture that he is laying out here. Just suffer the wrong. Just let those things go. And he makes the point here as well in verse 8, which is I think truly shocking when you read what these Corinthians are doing. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. There's a picture here of Christians taking advantage of another Christian. Understanding the forgiving nature of a Christian, the willingness to suffer wrong and the willingness to to take loss and sacrifice. And that another Christian, quote unquote, would then try to abuse that. And says, how could that possibly be? And so there is to be a completely different way of thinking in how Christians handle disputes and handle problems and suffering wrong with one another is that there would be a willingness on our part to be able to suffer wrong. And I think our reaction to that is hard to deal with because we, we, we hear that and we go, but that's not right. They, I've suffered wrong. That's not just. They did something and they need to fix that problem because of what they did or what they said or the loss that I incurred, the money that was taken or whatever it is. But think about that's what the whole example of Christ has set before us. You don't get very far in the whole idea of, you know, suffering loss is wrong and that's not just. And then you look at Jesus and go, oh, yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing. That's what the whole Christian life looks like is because he suffered loss for us. We're willing to sacrifice and do the same. That we're not able to look at what Jesus gave up for us and then go, well, I'm going to demand my rights and say, this is what has to happen. Instead, he's saying you should be willing to let that go. Why not suffer loss? Why not give up your rights? And I want you just to think that fighting and division, I think we would really would stop. If we would stop thinking about ourselves, and in particular to underline, if we stopped thinking about 
our rights. If we were willing to lay that down when it comes to each other, and that's the context he's talking about, Christian with Christian, to be willing to say, I'll forfeit my rights. It's okay. I'm not going to bring it up. It's okay. And even if it's brought up, don't worry about it. I'm not going to change the relationship. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to demand my pound of flesh out of you to just be wronged. How hard that is. Because I believe we're just consumed with personal vindication and are often unwilling to see the need to sacrifice self. You were right, and they did wrong you, but that's okay. Just suffer the loss and go on. And God gives us a great example of that in his son. Now, I want you to see what he does here with this. Verses 9 through 11, I would call a hinge paragraph of what he does here. But notice this is connected with verse 8. After verse 8, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Now, how does that we often parachute into those verses right there and go and, and, and disconnect it from what he's just been talking about. But think about how that connects up so well, where he's just basically saying, you can't act like the world anymore. Do you understand what it means? You used to fight for yourself and you used to fight for your rights. And it used to be about who you were and this needs to be done for my vindication and my justice. And it's about me getting these things right. And he's pointing out and going, now, wait a minute. Things are different now that you've come to Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. That way of thinking is a worldly way of thinking that needs to be put to rest. There must be the willingness on our be on our part then to not act like the world, to behave like the world or do the things that we used to do in the world. And one of the things that is just the easiest thing to do And a worldly kind of thinking is to be consumed about self. What other people did to me. And again, we are in a context of Christians with other Christians. I'm just consumed that they said something. They did this to me and they wronged me in this way. And our focus is not then to be about ourselves, but to understand the picture that has been given to us to hear is that we're supposed to be different. And we're supposed to think differently about those things. And as Christians, the primary concern is not about how does everything affect me, but how do these things affect you? And that's the shift that the Apostle Paul has been making for five and a half chapters now. 
is understanding the shift from worldly wisdom to godly wisdom and understanding who you are and what God has done for you and understand the privilege of being a Christian and understand that everything that you have and every blessing that you've been given is not of your own doing, but has been a gift of God as he's moved all through those concepts. To come to a situation like this and go, now, how would it be possible that you would think of yourself in a situation like this? This is the greatest time to practice showing that kind of forgiving spirit and that kind of willingness to sacrifice and suffer wrong with one another. Because it's a lot harder to do that in the world. And it should be a lot easier to do that here. Amongst other Christians. This is the test tube of that practice of giving of self and putting others ahead of ourselves, And that should certainly be the case here. And so we should be now different in our lives. It should be clearly seen how we treat other people differently. And it is our desire to be in harmony with one another. And we don't want strife and we don't want fighting and we don't want division. We are trying to bring about reconciliation. That that's what God is longing for us to be able to do. And so we're supposed to operate within those confines to see ourselves as that God describes us the body of Christ and to use images that God uses to help us understand that where God speaks of us as the body of Christ and the family of Christ and the household of Christ. Do we look at each other that way that we are family Not just random people who on occasion get together and sit here and profess God, but that this is the body of Christ. This is the household of God. This is the family of Christ. And we would act and behave in such a way. And when you use language like that, it becomes clear how we're supposed to deal with one another. Can you imagine uh, the horror of, you know, you're just stealing and defrauding from your family member? That's, that's, that's despicable. That's horrible. In using the terms of like the, the body of Christ, can you imagine your left hand stealing from your right hand and doing abusive things like that? I mean, you could be kidding me. And that's the picture that God is always using here. Is, do you understand who you are? Do you see the identity of who you, who you are? And when we see then who we are and we grasp this principle... I think it becomes very powerful for us to strive toward the goal that the Apostle Paul then put forward to those Corinthian Christians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. I hope that we would never take that for granted or take that as some lesser idea. It is my perception that historically that has not been a priority to Christians to understand that how we deal with each other is extremely important to God and that divisions and strife and fighting is not pleasing to God in the slightest. And even if we think that we are right, the Apostle Paul says, so what? Just be wronged instead. Why not be defrauded?
I find that interesting because, like I said, he could have ended then just said, you got a problem. Just go get somebody else in the church to take care of that dispute. And he goes, that's what you should have thought of. But he says, let's just back that up some and go, why won't you just be defrauded instead? This is us giving of ourselves for one another. And we should be willing to sacrifice for one another, whatever the cost, whatever it takes. Because that is the love of Christ that's supposed to be on display. We're supposed to be family. We're supposed to be the household of God. We're supposed to be the family of faith. We're supposed to be the body of Christ. And it's supposed to always look that way in how we speak and how we deal with one another. And that that would cause people to look at this relationship that we have with Christ and have with one another. And they would come in and say, I want something about that too. That there's something special here about being tied together in the fellowship of Christ that we have. And that others would see that and want to participate in it too. We become a glorious sign and light to the world when we behave as God has called us to behave. And what a failure it is when there is fighting and dividing that people would look at and not see that they'd want to be any part of that. May we always then consider what the Apostle Paul has taught us to be and always be than undivided. We're going to sing a song and we invite you to come to Jesus. And I've enjoyed this series with you and I hope it has been beneficial to you to think about where you are in your relationship with God and to think about over the lessons that we've done over these past few Sunday nights. Where are you in relationship with other people in this room? Are there people that need you need to talk to and resolve issues with? Are there people that you have wronged that you need to speak to? There are ways to deal with strife and to not have bitterness and to not have anger. That we would treat one another with godly respect. That we would have a harmony and that we would have a love for one another that we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves for the other person. That we would give of ourselves to one another. This is what our family is to look like. And may we do everything we can in that pursuit to show that kind of love of Christ to one another. If you haven't done that, will you think about your situation before God tonight and make that right with God? If you're not a Christian, I hope you would see that what a wonderful family exists here and that you can be part of that family. If you give your life to Jesus this very night by turning away from your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. If we can help you in any way respond to God's call, won't you come now while we stand and while we